0: Welcome to the Multifamily Five, where industry experts provide raw information about how they are achieving success in the current market conditions. And now, your host, Dallas based real estate broker Mark Allen.
1: and welcome to the multifamily five happy to have back my good friend Michael Becker the man the myth the legend from SPI advisory Mike how's it going hey doing pretty
0: good Mark appreciate you having me back
1: yeah so I think I had you on right when I got going it was probably uh, three years ago now and you were talking acquisitions Um, so anyways happy to have you back on and and, uh, of course different timing um, from from 2017 when we last spoke on this medium. Uh, so, looking forward to diving in. But with that, let's just start with a little bit of background about yourself and your company.
0: Yeah, so I uh, appreciate you having me again, Mark. Uh, Michael Becker, based here in, in Dallas, Texas. So, I'm a principal of SPI Advisory. So, we uh, are a uh, multifamily ownership group. We, we own uh, properties in Dallas, Fort Worth, and, and Austin, and we have a, a handful of deals in a secondary market called Tyler. We've done uh, you know, 10, 11,000 units uh, this, this cycle. Uh, Excuse me. Now, the previous cycle, I guess, um, we currently own about 6,000 units uh, with the majority of that up in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, Prior to my my ownership days, uh, I was a commercial real estate lender. So I uh, I loaned money for a regional bank and then uh, Wells Fargo bought our bank uh, back in the, the of the onset of the recession. So I spent, you know, several years with Wells Fargo, kind of the last, uh, during the Great Recession, kind of the last big dislocation of the economy. So uh, I was kind of the Grim Reaper, you know, 10, 12 years ago, working a lot of the uh, the, the problem loans out. And uh, now hopefully, uh, I avoid the Grim Reaper, though, this, this go around with uh, the, hopefully, the decisions you made over the last several years will be proven to be wise and, and prudent as we uh, now kind of, go into the uh, the COVID-19 uh, recession that we're into right now.
1: Yeah. Well, it seems like you've taken away some great points from, um, or, or lessons learned rather, from your lending days, uh, specifically going through the last recession. And I just know, you know, as you got going at buying, uh, you were buying lower quality and lower quality locations early on in the cycle. And then um, we're, we're tearing up on both quality of asset, and quality of location. And I know the last couple of years, you wouldn't touch uh, areas that you know where there were properties that were uh, foreclosed upon, where, where others were you know, very aggressive, such as uh, Lake Highlands. So I'm sure that we'll, uh, both will both well. But anyways, we're I'm about gonna, to find out. <laughs> That's for well, sure, right? We're about to find out. That's right. So I'm getting tired of talking about COVID, I mean, it literally consumes my days just calling owners and having conversations. Um, so do you want to be upfront with that? So, of course, you know, we're, it is what it is. And that's the environment we're in where it's impacting us economically. Uh, so what I want to do today is just talk a little bit about, um, you, you know, your experience, whether it be on the ownership side or the lending side and taking a look back at the last cycle um, or, or like you said, uh, 2008, nine, 10. Um, cause now we're, we're kind of ending that, uh, previous cycle. But anyways, taking a look back, uh, 10 to 15 years ago and trying to understand what, what owners our smart owner and operators were doing, uh, during that time, uh, or owners that, you know, like yourselves, they use third party management, um, and, and what things owners should be doing today. Um, kind of in the midst of the storm to uh, prepare for the future, whether that be you know, acquisitions and maybe it's you know, uh, creating liquidity, or who are the investors you're going to to raise that equity, uh, but also on the investor management side, I know uh, you're unique uh, where you have some joint venture partners, but you've also syndicated deals and raise equity and have a lot of different uh, K-1s that you're putting out each year. Um, investor management, we can talk a little bit about, but also just given your background uh, and lending, you know, what what should owners be doing with their lenders or how how should they be communicating how often, um, what kind of information that should they be uh, providing so on and so forth. So um, I think let's start with just from an acquisitions front, I guess where you're, if you're going to buy today, I mean, how are you underwriting deals? Um, And then maybe go into, you know look kind of looking 6 12 18 months out not knowing how long this is going to last sure
0: um you know i mean i think i think first and foremost um you know from today's acquisition standpoint i mean i think we're we're trying to be active but there's just not a whole lot to, to to do to be honest with you you know from that standpoint you know uh I was talking with uh, my buddy Paul Peoples, and kind of had he had a Seinfeld reference. It's kind of the show about nothing. So if we want to talk about that, we have a show about nothing because there's really not much going on. To be honest with you, you have your your holdover deals that you know now are a couple months into this, so you know most of those would have either already have closed, uh, kind of pre-COVID set deals, and or you know, have been been dropped, uh, or you know, you kinda your very, very last kind of semblance of those deals trying to kind of probably band-aid those those suckers to the, the finish line. Uh and they're just so much just just um, uh, unknowns out in the marketplace that you know how do you how do you underrate your decks? Your best materially changed the vast majority of lenders out of the marketplace. So really you got your agency lenders and that's that's about it. And then they put all these overlays with additional um, underwriting overlays uh, with with additional, you know, uh, taxes and insurance and PNI escrows up. So it's making, you know, everything so um, challenging right now. So I think, um, you know, unless you're like in a ten thirty one, I, I couldn't imagine you wanna go out and buy something right in this environment. So I think, you know, my my personal crystal ball is that I don't think we see really anything for the second quarter. I think you see just a extreme small handful of deals trading the third quarter. And then, you know, fourth quarter, maybe the the handful of like a drip on the faucet might turn into a small little trickle, and then we'll we'll kinda get the new normal once we once we kinda get, you know, through our second round of rent collection. So as you know, we were as a 28th of april so you know we're april's collection went you know much better than everyone expected so now we go to may and june and see kind of how those go. so i think if may and june go better than than you know everyone expect, then i think there's a heck of a lot more confidence out in the, the marketplace as well so i think you know we're, we're looking at everything but there's really not much to look at so i don't i don't know um you know, how, how much to really talk about acquisitions. I don't think there's a whole lot to talk about until we kind of get in that third, fourth quarter, really, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, you're right.
1: And, you know, talk about Q1 volume. I was looking at Dallas-Fort Worth uh, closing velocity. Uh, There was a 254% increase in quarter one of 2020, looking year over year. So we were poised to just have an incredible year uh, with regard to transactions. And here we are uh, looking at the data. I need to relook at the data, but just the 21st of April, uh, or the 1st through the 21st rather, we really hit two closes, two closings. And I think that's primarily 50 plus units um, compared to the previous year. Uh, I think it was 17, um, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, an 87.5% decline. So we, we really did hit a halt. Um, and at least for me on the transaction side, it's, it's fo- like you said, it's focusing on what I had. Uh, both in escrow are pretty close too, Um, but it's like, as a broker, I'm like, man, I, I don't know how to feel if I'm not transacting, I don't feel like I'm doing anything, uh, or at least have deal flow coming in. So it's, I'm just looking at my KPIs and just trying to trying to be a resource at this time. And if I, if I make my 20 calls in a day and I have some good conversations and I provide some good insight then I feel accomplished, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. As far as just nothing really happening right now,
0: yeah, um, it's weird, right? I'm, I'm the same way, right? I, I'm very transactionally uh, driven. I like the, kind of the beginning, middle, and end of, of a transaction, so I kind of feel purposeless in a in a lot of ways because uh, you don't have that that instant uh, satisfaction or you know, kind of the the goal to go achieve. Just kind of more of uh, just looking at the looking at your dollars trickle in every day. So yeah. So
1: what do you do? If you're active buyer in the last couple of years, um, you know, I know there's a lot of different profiles. Maybe you're, you're using your own equity. Um, you know, maybe you're a private syndicator, maybe you're working with some private equity or family offices, just, I mean, looking at your own business right now. And and if you're in good shape to, to purchase, um, on the other side of this thing, uh, I, I know you've done a great job of building broker relationships. And I think that's really important. Um, you you've come in and you've, you've done what you said you're going to do in, in uh, transactions. And, you know, so brokers um, have you and your company up on a pedestal, which is great. But what kind of things can you do uh, outside of that to position yourself to be able to come in um, and acquire maybe some good opportunities at, at a discount to what uh, deals were trading here prior?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you just try to stay relevant as, as much as possible, even though there's not a lot of transactions going, you know, we're having but I have daily calls with, with different market participants. So, you know, probably really the brokerage community, I'm still trying to have, you know, conversations like, like you are, right? We're, we're talking about nothing, but, you know, we're trying to share what limited information, that uh, new information that, that we all learn and, Know, hear about this thing or that thing you're starting to see a couple couple of deals that were previously distressed you know someone that that would have been bailed out potentially by the market but had higher vacancy and just were underperforming and the tougher located deals and things like that i think those deals that were already kind of on the verge of trouble are now this is gonna put them over put them over the edge and, and get them at the trouble standpoint so you're even, I like to hear, not that I want to hear about people getting in trouble, but I like to hear market information like that. So then I can then start building new reference points on the new normal kind of going forward because we got to, we got to kind of establish a base and I don't think anyone really knows where, where kind of the base level is going to ultimately shake out. Uh, so the more more pieces of information, the more reference points I can get, the, the the quicker we're going to get to kind of find that base. So that's one of the things I'm doing. As far as equity goes, you know, we've, we've taken... Really kind of two primary sources of equity. One has been kind of joint ventures with, you know, one-off extremely high net worth individuals. Well, they'll write the majority of the check and write a small check and kind of JV together. So kind of like a family office, one's uh, well, that family office uh, standpoint and or if a high net worth individual had a 1031, we'd help kind of facilitate the 1031 in a, in a joint venture relationship. Uh, and or we've, we've probably done more at this point um, uh, with just syndicated capital. So a hundred dollars minimum type of investment. So you go, you know, raise, you know, 15, 20 million from, you know, uh, hundred closest friends, right. So you kind of go pull the capital. So coming out of it, I, I would imagine, you know, I, I knew the entire time and I've been said many, many times this last cycle, you know, one of my things that I was focused on is just trying to get our base as big as possible on the syndicate of capital aside. Cause I know as soon as there's some disruption in the marketplace, those guys are going to basically scatter, so if, if I would have, um, you know, if I needed a, a, a million or 10 million bucks, I know if I hit 200 people, I'd probably get uh, 100 people to give me 100,000 each. You know, now I don't know what that conversion percentage, but I know it's going to take more than, you know, a 50% conversion ratio. That ratio is going to go way down. Um, so I just wanted to get my base as big as possible. And the, the first thing I promise you, the first deal I'm gonna do in a syndicated uh, format is gonna be probably on the smaller end of the scale. I'm not gonna go try to set a new record on the amount of capital I can raise coming out of the gate because the deal might be better, but you know, everyone got impressed in the stock market or you know, God knows what their situation is. There's just a lot of fear and uncertainty. So they'll be less likely to invest, even though the opportunity might be better. And I think it's kind of human nature. Um, so you know, we'll probably focus a little bit more on the high network guys that we have uh, relationships with. And then we are we kinda started forming or trying to form some relationship with some private equity firms that uh that should have some some funds no matter what the economic situation are. We might actually go down that path, which we've we've so far have avoided, uh, because those guys will have capital and you know, have a coin so to put put the money out when uh, the opportunities are a little bit better. So we're, we might focus a little bit more on that. Uh, But at the same time, you know, the syndicated capital is probably the best. So we would want to get back to that. If we we have to leave it, I want to come back to it as soon as possible. Okay.
1: We talked about the flight to quality, this cycle, uh, as we got late in the tooth. Do you think you'd shift and go back down the totem pole to class C properties if, you know, if we started to see distress again?
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what Mark's referring to is when we first started out, we bought a lot of workforce housing, so 60s, 70s kind of uh, vintage, and then we- 20 a door and Garland. Yeah, 20, 30 a door in Garland and Clayton <laughs> Irving and places like that. Then transition into the the B class, you know, or the 80s vintage, um, and, then, and then we then transitioned to kind like of A minus, so we even did some, some A stuff as well. Um, and the reason was simply because guys like Mark were doing too good of a job, where they and it's a combination of Mark doing a good job and they you know you know the, the cycle with the social media and podcast and, and uh, you know the mentor programs. There's a lot of, a lot of interest in, in the space. A lot of people came in, started putting uh, putting syndicates together and doing these deals. So the amount of capital uh, was was immense, and a lot of that capital chased kind of the workforce housing value add space. So the cap rates used to be um, a pretty decent spread between the, the top of the grade and the bottom of the grade. It all basically came on top of each other. So it didn't make any sense for me to pay the same, same or similar cap rate for something built in 1974 that I could something built in 2004. So as we had the ability to buy um, reasonable capital, we could buy the bigger, more expensive stuff at the same cap rate. We sold the old and bought the new. Um, and to your point, I think, Really, the the dislocation is probably first going to show itself and think of like a barbell analogy, Mark. I think, you know, really both ends of the market are going to be probably the most impacted first, meaning the brand new deal that's still in the middle of lease up that a developer still has a construction loan. It's gonna be hard as hell to lease that thing up uh quickly and they could have face maturity issues or the covenant breaks or whatever with their construction lender. So I think there's gonna probably be some opportunity in, in non-stabilized lease up brand new construction, as well as the bottom of the market in particular and in, in the tougher higher crime areas like the Lake Islands, like the Woodhavens um, to be Dallas Fort Worth uh, centric here. I think those locations will have um, you know more more collection issues, in particular if, uh, if people put you know ten or twelve year agency loans on it two or three years ago. Your interest only is running out. You're into amortization. You're in a syndicated deal. It's your first or second deal you ever did, and uh, you're not getting the rents or the rent sort of value out. You're not getting rents in general because you have massive vacant physical and, and economic vacancy in, in your deal, um, and you don't have deep pockets yourself, and your investors aren't going to fund you. I think those are kind of the the, the two parts where the most dislocation. I think if you bought. An 80s deal, you're reasonably well capitalized and you're in a decent market, like, you know, uh, South Irving versus South Dallas. Um, I think those deals probably hold on okay. Um, I think it's the the edges of the market are going to be where the, the first dislocation. So yeah, I think that's probably I'll look up or look down um, in, in quality. I think the middle is probably going to hold together a little bit better. So yeah, we might be going back in time um, to uh, like Huey Lewis said, go back in time and go buy the, the '70s assets. Um, you know, we'll still just focus on the, the better located '70s assets that maybe. Or owned by an operator that just didn't structurally set their deal up or too, too over levered, maybe had a had a uh, plan to go do the 3.0 value add to, to deal. It's already been value added twice and they put a high leverage um, debt fund bridge loan on it and didn't know what the hell they're doing. I think that's probably the opportunity that, that would catch my eye first. Yeah.
1: Well, I think in both scenarios, so whether a property, let's say a, a, a new deal and lease up is sixty percent occupied, uh, or you got a Class C property that is uh, not covering for debt, maybe seventy-five percent occupied, or whatever the case may be. Uh, I mean, how do you get the how do you get the debt for those properties as things continue to tighten up? I mean, right now we've seen a lot of the bridge lenders fall to the wayside or just really change terms where they're just hard to make, make uh, sense of deals. Um, and maybe as, as, um, depending if this gets worse or, or better, um, that could continue to tighten up in the credit market. Um, you know, I'm, I'm yep. facing a switch situation right now with another deal, uh, where there's, there's a couple of offers on the table. It is a classy deal. Um, but it's, you know, I guess this, the loan assumption route is really not there just because of the timeline when the lender's ready to foreclose on the property too. Um, you've got someone that, that seems to have a bridge lender, but they've got financing contingencies. Um, and then you, three, you've got all cash offers. So I'm, I don't know, I guess I'm talking through uh, a lot of different scenarios, but I'm just thinking for some of these distress deals. I feel like if things continue to tighten up and get worse, the only way to buy them is is with cash. Am I right? Yeah, I think
0: the, in the the immediate term, that is probably your most likely source. Right, is cash, and then you know we're going to start seeing the what I used to do. Right, coming out of recession, you know, I made a ton of bridge loans when I when I worked at Wells Fargo, and you know, they were all recourse. Right, so recourse debt's going to be on before non recourse debt. Yeah, Uh, And then, uh, so if it's distress, it's either going to be cash, it's going to be, um, you know, recourse, recourse bank debt, or, um, you know, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of non-recourse bridge programs out there. So signing the guarantee and, you know, the other thing that overcomes lack of, uh, lack of current debt services, you, you lower your leverage or you, you pledge, you know, principal and interest payments as additional collateral that can be, you know, released, uh, at least once you kind of hit a certain hurdles, So you're, you know, the, the days of the 85%, uh, bridge loan, um, uh, from some debt fund, those are, those are, those are in the past, right? Those are, it's going to take, those are, those didn't come back to vogue to probably uh, honestly last 18 to 24 months yeah. when they really became in vogue. And, uh, you know, we were what, eight, eight years of the cycle before those really started becoming in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it took a while for those to come back on. Um, and uh, they're they're gone. So I think maybe that's a little clue. If you start seeing financing similar to that, we're probably closer to the end of whatever the next cycle is than, than the beginning, because yeah. uh, because you know those were those were not you know generally speaking we weren't fundamentally um, system wide. The, the debt was pretty pretty fundamentally sound, but on the, on the margins there certainly were those uh, high leverage uh, debt debt funds, which I'm very thankful we never we never took on. Um, you know because I also think that there might also um, some of those guys are a little predatory, where they're almost want to induce you to to their borrowers to default, so they can then start charging default interest and ultimately take the take the asset back through foreclosure or deep lure foreclosure. Um, you know, maybe like you had, uh, you had a, a big value add plan and the, the debt fund's going to, you're going to go out and spend a million bucks doing a bunch of upgrades and your, then your lender won't actually fund the, the draw. So then you get a bunch of mechanics liens and some other stuff pop up. I think there's going to be some, some stories like that in the not too distant future. We're going to start hearing out in the marketplace about those, those, uh, predatory, uh, debt fund lenders out there. So, you know, I would, uh, I would next cycle if you're, Still alive and doing this business, and listen to me now. I would, I would certainly caution you, caution you from, from doing those types of things. And I said that two years ago as well. So I think I'm uh, hopefully at least be consistent in what my uh, my beliefs were. Mm. Okay.
1: I actually got an offer today on another one of my listings that uh, you know is a bridge deal. But so many people, there's been a flight to non recourse, and I understand why. But the the offer was from a developer. And he was partnering with another owner operator of, um, you know, really class A and B multifamily um, principal with probably 10,000 plus units, primarily working with institutional equity. But uh, this is one they wanted to do just with their own money. And um, anyways, I I brought that up. I was trying to think of uh, different resources. They were going to look at agency and, you know, sizes for agency. They just can't get um, max leverage. Um, like they'd want to, to come in and put, you know, 10 to 15, a door into the property. Um, and, and I brought that up about recourse and, and another bank. And I said, you could take recourse through this bank. And he said, yeah, that's, I mean, I've only taken one non-recourse loan in my life. It's all been recourse. I'm like,
0: oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense because you're a developer. Yeah, that's right. And that, that's, what's going to be back. And you know, what uh, you take recourse when, when prices get reset, right. I don't, uh, you don't do that at the end of the cycle. You do that. At the beginning of the cycle, right, or the the reset phase, so I think that's that's probably you ought to see how these deals all clear. um You know, if you can, and or if you can, you know, go buy someone that has seven eight years left on an agency loan. You can buy the the property, you know, at or around the debt basis, Mm -hmm. and then use kind of fund, you know, a little bit of equity to for the down payment, and then fund, you know, capex and working capital and everything else kind of out of pocket. It's um, an additional you know, equity raise. I think that's probably uh, maybe another more viable way to clear some deals that aren't quite as distressed. But, you know, I think right. it's going to be natural. You know, we had, a, we had a deal on the market. We just we just it because at the end of the day, I, I don't have any sort of distress in my, in my personal situation there, or at least not yet. So why would I go sell into an environment like this? And so that's kind of back to the, the first part of the conversation is there's going to be a whole lot of nothing going on. So unless you're forced to take action now, why would you take action?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's talk a little bit about investor management. I know you've got a lot of investors. Um, and, and how many, how many units, how many deals? Uh, so we,
0: we have about 6,000 units today. Unfortunately should have been closer to five, but we had a couple couple deals COVID came and shot in the head and <laughs> middle of escrow. But uh And then we have, uh, I think I've taken 700 or or some odd uh, money from 700, some odd unique investors. And uh, for 2019, we did somewhere between 11 and 1200 K ones. So we, you know, well, investor communication is certainly a key part of what I do on on a a day in, day out type of uh, basis for sure. So we've been, uh, you know, really trying to step up the the frequency of communication first um, with, with our investors, as well as with our lenders, but our investors... And, uh, and and you know really the, the the most important thing right now, nothing matters except for dollars in the door. So that's what everyone really, really kind of focused on. You're not really focused on getting lease trade outs and certain other things. you're really trying to drive the value. You're just trying to, to get the dollars that the residents owe you and, and collect them. and then secondarily lease your lease your baking units. Um, you know and try to try to maintain your occupancy as well. Uh, so next month, dollars it can come in the door at a uh, same or hopefully higher rate than, than the previous month. So that's what I've been kind of focused on, you know, on uh, certainly, you know, uh, multiple times a week. I'm, I've been sending people out update, uh, updates on our scheduled rents, our collected rents so the amounts outstanding. And we've seen that kind of trickle down. So as, as we kind of round out April, we're uh, on April 20, 28th, we're sitting here and I'm 2.7 percent delinquent. Uh, so we've collected, you know, nine over 97% of the scheduled rents have, have come in the door. So we should finish about two and a half percent as we have a couple more days to collect rent in April. Uh, and like I guess that, that far exceeds what what I feared 30 days prior was we were kind of heading into April's collections coming out of, out of March. So I think it's been a, been a huge success and, and we have still have, uh, some more first housing all the way to brand new. And generally speaking, the assets that have the highest amount of delinquencies tend to be the older stuff and the lesser locations that we just couldn't quite get out in time. Um, we actually had two deals that uh, that were uh, two days away from closing when the buyer's lender froze. And those happen to be my two uh, largest delinquencies as we talked today, which is, which is extremely frustrating. That number would certainly be south of two and a half percent if I got those two assets uh, actually yeah. closed. But it is what it is and it didn't happen and we're uh, moving forward.
1: Yeah. With over 700 unique investors, I assume the constant communication through email uh, or maybe you're making phone calls as well. But I'm sure that eliminates a lot of the phone calls with, hey, what's going on? Uh, it does. With my property.
0: Yeah, for sure. Right. And then I think it gives, you know, uh, when you're in the, you know, one, one of the things I like to say kind of before this is when people invest with you, they give you their money. So they think that I personally have their money. And then if I don't communicate with them, they think I stole their money. Right. So communicate, communicate that that's a good way to keep, uh, keep everyone's, um, you know, uh, generally in, in pretty good spirits. And, and especially in an elevated time like this, when everyone's got a lot of emotions, and fears and anxieties on their personal life and their, their financial investments, etc. You know, I think if uh, if you can kind of communicate and give a bunch of factual uh, information, good or bad, at least they're not in the dark, and everyone everyone feels better about it. And I think that'll that'll pay dividends. You know, not only in the present, but I think in the future when when it's time to ask for money, and if this person invested with me and. Four other uh, people that do similar things, apartment apartment syndicators, and we all come with our hand out at the same time on the back end of this raise Some capital, I think uh, my hand will get get full of money before the next guy's. If, if he kind of put his head in the sand and didn't have um, similar levels of, of communication, because uh, that's what the people ultimately just want to know that you're in a boxel with them and uh, you're fighting like hell to go go get the best outcome that the uh, the market's going to allow you to get at the at the current time.
1: Yeah. A lot of my investments have been made with, um, guys, uh, one on the West coast, one on the East coast. And I'm like, I have to reach out to them and I talk to them on a regular basis anyways, but they don't send any kind of investor communication. I I also, uh, invested with one of the local uh, mentorship group, uh, syndicators and I get constant contact from them, which is, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not a difficult investor. I, I, um, but I, I like to know what's going on with uh, you know my my hundred thousand or whatever I invested yeah. with, uh, with that owner into the property and what's you know what are the next steps or what's going on with the, the property. Um, yeah, I prefer the monthly uh, updates versus the quarterly. Um, but it is what it is. Um, so, anyways, that's great. What, what about, let's, let's shift a little bit, let's talk about lenders and servicers um, during this time. And, you know, many are considering capital calls, many are considering forbearance. Uh, what's your take on on um, forbearance?
0: We'll start there. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if you need it, you got to take it. But if you need it, it's, it's probably like the, uh, the whole, uh, to be topical, the whole ventilator uh, thing you know the, the the people that have COVID-19 that go on the ventilators if you need it you need it but the uh, likelihood of living is uh, what you know 20% once you get on it that you'll, you'll get off it alive it's probably something along those lines will be the forbearance people as well so if you need the forbearance and your assets you know fundamentally flawed in some some way and you don't have liquidity in your age to make you know make a month or two of, uh, of de- decreased collections and you don't have um, either the sponsor or the ownership group have enough liquidity or feed the deal to support it, you know, chances are those are going to be your future REOs um, down, you know, several months down the road. So once you get on it, I don't see how a lot of those guys can pay the forbearance back and, and rehab the deal. But if it's your, your only option, it's your only option and, and you need to take it. Right. I mean, I, I think that that's certainly something to, work on, um, you know, if you need it. But uh, I think, you know, certainly having capital calls would be preferred to that, uh, to the extent that your investors will actually participate, I think is probably inversely related to the number, uh, correlated to the number of investors you have in the deal. So if I have one investor in the deal, he's gonna be more likely to feed it because he put a big check in, Where if I had 100, a lot of those guys just simply aren't aren't gonna do a capital call um, and then, you know, obviously, if the uh, the, the manager has some liquidity and, and, you know, it's just their first deal and they just had to cobble together enough money to earn this money up and go raise the bulk of it from your um, passive investors, which would have been me when I first started out, right? we did going have all the resources we had today. I think those deals are going to have, you know, the more likelihood of having distress as well, where, you know, now if it was, we have 20, you can't remember the exact number right now, because so we've been buying and selling stuff over like 20. Four assets, twenty-five assets, whatever we own now. If uh, all twenty-five of my assets have problems at the same time, I, I can't feed them. But if one or two has some some issues, we have the capacity to you know make partnership loans and, and solve short-term cash flow issues uh, along the way. So you know it's, I'm, I'm in a much better position today than I would have been seven, eight years ago when we first kind of started buying buying deals. So you know people like this with me. Uh, have, uh, have a lot that kind of backstop that we can backstop some of the deals versus if you invest with someone that's been doing this for six months, we'll, we'll likely not have those same level of resources available to them. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, well, your lender is your you know, bringing 55 to maybe upwards of 80% of the capital to the, to the deal. So they're, um, you know, a majority partner. What,
0: what does your communication look like with your lenders? Um, so before this or right as this was kind of really hitting or came really apparent to most of us around the middle to latter part of March, um, you know, really, really sort of kind of, you know, the, 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 the shit was hitting the fan, excuse my French. Uh, one of the things I did was I um, pulled together a T12, a rent roll and a balance sheet. I sent that to every one of my lenders kind of towards the latter part of March saying, hey, you know, as we go into the, the abyss, the great unknown, here's, you know, here's where I am occupancy, here's where my um, trailing collections were for the last you know, 12 months, and here's my uh, cash position and my payables position. And fortunately, the vast majority of our deals have quite a bit of liquidity in them. Um, and then there is one or two that don't have as much liquidity as I would prefer, maybe something that I own for three or four years. We did the value add plan. And my loan's advertising now or has been advertising for the last year. Um, so maybe I don't have quite as much liquidity in that entity. So every every deal is slightly different. I sent that to them. So I think that was uh, well received and I sent that to them proactively as well. So they didn't have to ask me for it. I sent it to them. And then now um, in April um, last week, uh, I sent out to each one of my, investors, each one of my lenders. Hey, here is my um, scheduled rent, here's my collected rent, here's my current outstanding and my delinquency. And so then they all got to see, as of about, you know, 20, 24, 25 days within the month, where we were and what was still outstanding. So I, they, they didn't have to come chase me down and ask me where I was at. I proactively reached out to them. So, you know, to the extent that I do need something from them, you know, I think I think that's something I definitely learned from being a banker, you know, the, the people that were proactive, the people that reached out to us, I was much more inclined to go to go to bat with my credit officer or, you know, help them try to try to give them some sort of relief um, or, or approve some requests. And if the people that I had to go chase down for information or put the head to sand, um, those people tended to, to not get the benefit of the doubt quite as much. So I think communication is, is certainly key. So just communicate. I mean, the vast, every one of their the borrowers in some form or fashion are being impacted by all this. So this isn't a surprise. This isn't uh, necessarily something you did. I mean, obviously you could have had some other issues that then this puts you over the over the edge. Maybe you made some other poor decisions previously. But I think you know we 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 do that. And then, you know, obviously one of the when we first started off. The first thing we did was communicate to all the investors, and then so we to a lender that we are turning off all upgrades. So try to conserve cash by standpoint, and we're not paying out distributions until we kind of see some sort of light within the title and get some sort of clarity on what the situation looks like. So I think if you're you're still spending a bunch of money upgrading your units and you're you're paying out distributions and then you get in trouble, uh, your lender is not going to be very happy with you and, and likely won't be um, as forgiving when you start asking for forbearance or some sort of modification to the, uh, the, the contract or your, your promise or note. Is there a unique strategy that you've
1: seen implemented this time around, um, or just with everything going on with regard to COVID, something that maybe caught your attention you said, oh, well, that, that's pretty interesting. That's a good idea.
0: Um, you know, the uh, uh, thing that I thought was a bad idea, I'll uh, that way. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I have a podcast as well as you do, so I'll go to the Old capital, Real Podcast with Paul Peoples. and talked a lot about this stuff and then I listed a lot of other people on, on podcasts so the quote unquote you know smart guys that had a lot of podcasts and a lot of these guys were kind of preaching late March that hey I'm gonna go to my residence and give my residence fifty dollars off or five percent off or whatever it is off for April's rent if they pay me in, in March for April's rent. And uh, and they thought that they're kind of tapping that that was a a genius idea. And I, I it didn't make sense to me. So we, we didn't do that because you know what i think the reality was is what we found out in april were generally the people that were had the ability to pay and were generally responsible people that cared about their credit those people paid on time anyways and the people that um, that were responsible and didn't care about their credit, they weren't going to pay me whether I gave them 50 bucks off or I didn't give them 50 bucks off. So what you really did was entice people that were going to pay you rent and then you gave them a concession, right? So then you lost that, that 50 bucks per unit or 5% or whatever it was um, and, and gave it as a concession. And at the time, we exactly need that money more than, than ever. So that didn't make a whole lot of sense to us. Um, to, to offer that. So I mean if they would have they would have given concession if they paid May's rent in March, that might have made a little bit more sense to me. But but anyways, that was something that kind of jumped out the page that I heard a lot of quote unquote smart guys say was a good idea that that was a, a pretty dumb idea to be honest with you. I, heard um, I think I think one thing that's definitely uh, proven out to be different this time than last time, and it's just the way our society is, is we have a lot more technological technologically advanced and the way we run our assets today versus the way we did in 2008 where you know with the the on, on, online you know ability to, to do virtual tours virtual leasing take applications over the Online, where you know, 12 years ago, everyone still had a, generally speaking, fill out a paper, paper application on site and go see the see the deal. Uh, maybe we had websites, but they didn't have all the virtual tools, or t- tools and tours that they, they have today. So I think that certainly now allowed flags uh, in the yeah front of the property. That's right. So our leasing activity, while while the traffic, well one thing that I found very fascinating was our traffic is probably down uh, 50 to 60 percent. Over you know this time, say last year, but our our leasing activity is actually going down ten or fifteen percent from this time last year. Meaning that you know if these residents are still out there, still looking to move, but the ones that are actually out there looking, there's few of them. But the ones that are looking are extremely serious. There's no look you lose. So if you're out there looking to get an apartment today, you're gonna you're gonna lease right. So so I think that's been certainly a, a, a interesting takeaway that I, I have from this whole thing, Mark that I was not expecting 30 days ago.
1: Well, Mike, who are you looking to connect with? Um, I I don't know if you know, but well actually you probably know because this uh, podcast or this interview goes out on my database uh, to my newsletter, typically put it out once a month. Um, Now I'm probably putting it out a little more frequently, uh, a little more communication via email, just with what's going on in the market. Um, so anyways, that being said, you know we've got um, you know, about 2,000 investors or so on my database, uh, some of those private nature that may look to, to execute 1031 exchanges uh, or may, uh, uh, a couple that I can think of that may look to sell um, execute a 1031 exchange but really want to want an operating partner or someone to manage everything and they just want to sit back and collect checks. Um, so anyways yeah. all that said, who are you looking to connect with?
0: Yeah, man. Thank you. Anyone that that uh, wants to find out more information from us there's really two ways of doing that. You know, I just referenced um, the co-host of a, a podcast called Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast. You can find that on iTunes or Stitcher or probably anywhere you're hearing my voice right now on Mark's podcast. We're we'll probably at the same place. Um, or you can simply go to our our website, which is oldcapitalpodcast.com. Um, and there you can go back five or six years that we've been doing and hear me say all the same stuff I just said today. A lot of it I said four or five years ago. So hopefully, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to pat myself on the back too, too early here, Mark, but I think, uh, all these things that I was preaching against three years ago about structurally setting your deal up flawed and buying in terrible locations and they just didn't matter for the last three or four years, all of a sudden, overnight, they're, they're mattering. So, um, and to the extent that you want to hear me say, I told you, so you can go back and hear me say, say all that same stuff nice. a few years ago. Um, or, or if you, uh, you know, interest in potentially partnering with us, we like Mark reference, we, we do do some 1031 work. So if you have, you know, 5 million or more in 1031 money, or, and you're just looking to kind of come to Texas and, and have someone help you identify the deal, underwrite it, uh, get the debt placed on it. And then maybe potentially even JP and, operate the deal on a go forward basis. You know, our, the best way is simply go to my company's website. The company is uh, SPI advisory. So just go to spiadvisory.com. That's SPI like spy advisory.com. There there's a contact us form. You can fill that out. I'm always happy to uh, set up calls with people. I uh, meet off of podcasts.
1: Awesome. Mike, thanks so much for the time. If you're listening, please go to iTunes and leave us a review uh, and a five-star rating um, Mike, as always, good connecting with you and uh, hope to see you soon once, once uh, I guess, May 1st and the stay in place orders lifted.
0: All right. thank you, Mark. Thanks.